Thank you all for listening. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. The website is rabbiwolby.com. The email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I encourage everyone to sample some of the podcasts. We have the Jewish History Podcast. We're right now doing a study of the Yom Kippur War. Very fascinating. Uh, Parsha Podcast every week, a new Parsha Podcast, Eternal Ethics, which covers Perky Avos, uh, one episode per Mishnah. Of course, This Jewish Life, the Torah 101. We're going through right now the 13 Principles of Faith of the Rambam. We're dealing uh, with very interesting, intriguing, and stimulating and maybe even vexing questions with respect to Jewish philosophy, Jewish theology, Jewish eschatology. It is a fantastic introduction for intellectuals to Torah. Check them all out. The website again, rabbiwolby.com. The email address, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. We have the upcoming festival of Shavuot, of Shavuos upcoming. It's a very interesting day. It's a festival that has many different names, many different facets. Of course, we read the Book of Ruth, we study Torah the whole night, there's tradition to eat dairy, there's a lot of things going on on this day, a lot to unpack. Now, of course, the day of Shavuot is the sixth day of the month of Sivan, and it is the anniversary of the time of the giving of the Torah at Sinai, the most significant event in all of human history, when a nation of millions of people at the foot of the mountain they witness something that up to that point has never happened and from the point had never happened. A nation hears the word of God, experiences prophecy collectively, survives to tell the tale, hears the word of God directly, and experiences direct prophecy on a level that even regular prophets cannot obtain. And of course, that's the end or that's the conclusion of 50 days since the Exodus. Pesach and Passover, we commemorate the Exodus. Seven days later, of course, there's a splitting of the sea. They travel to various places. They end up in a place called Mara. The water's bitter. They end up getting some mitzvos over there. In the interim period between Passover and Shavuot, the Jewish people start to get the manna. And then they encamp at the foot of the mountain in Sinai on the first day of the month of Sivan. And there's a very famous Rashi quoting from our sages in the Talmud that tells us that the state of the nation when they encamped at the foot of the mountain was a very unique one. They encamped at the foot of the mountain as if they were one person. If you look at the text of the, of the Hebrew word to describe the nation, it's singular. The nation, singular, as if it's one person, they encamped by the mountains. Says Rashi. They were like one person with one heart. And the sages tell us that in preparation for Sinai, the nation was primed to receive the Torah because there was complete unity, a unity that was never experienced prior and never since. And in fact, the Midrash tells us that had there been one person missing, if one of the 600,000 souls that were at the foot, that eventually at the foot of the mountain, if they were not there, the momentous revelation would not have happened. And in fact, if you look at the text of the Ten Commandments, it's, again, speaking to the people as if they're one person. And the idea being, on a kind of a spiritual level, that our sages tell us that the whole nation really is comprised of one soul the soul of Adam. But that soul was divided up and it 
comprised 600,000 souls at the time of Sinai. And therefore, if there was one person missing, well, there's one part of the big soul, the collective national soul that was missing, and therefore, you couldn't have had that experience. Similarly, I say, just tell us that if you count all the letters of a Torah scroll, you'll have 600,000 letters. Now, the problem with that is, just parenthetically, that you'll actually find that there's only 304,805 letters in the Torah. So what exactly it means that there were 600,000 letters in the Torah, that's an interesting question. It's likely that the way that letters are counted is that many letters are comprised of other letters, you know, like a shin is three vavs next to each other. So that's probably the answer. But our sages do say there's 600,000 letters in the Torah. And just like we know, if you have a Torah scroll that's missing a letter, the entire Torah scroll is invalidated. The Jewish nation, if you're missing one soul, if you're missing one individual, then the entirety collapses because, yes, we're a nation of, we're a nation of individuals, but there's something that's special about the Sinai experience and about the accepting of the Torah that mandated that we all had to be fused together as one with none of us missing. And that's one of the themes of the day is the, is the idea of a collective identity but also of, of individuality. For example, our sages also tell us that each person experienced it differently. It wasn't the same identical experience to 600,000 people. It was 600,000 different experiences. Each one got their acceptance of Torah in a way that was tailored for their unique identity, for their unique character makeup. So on one hand, they're all individuals, each one having their own transcendental experience. On the other hand, they're all part of this one beautiful whole that's fused together that we can't miss any part of it because that creates the collective whole. And that's one of the themes in a Torah in general. We're told in the end of Deuteronomy, Torah Tzivalana Moshe, Torah was commanded by Moses, Morasha Kehilat Yaakov, it is the heritage of the congregation of Israel. It's ours, we got it as a nation, and we perpetuate it too as a nation. There's a story in the Midrash, one of the great rabbis of the Talmudic era of Yanai, he invited a poor person to his home and he gave him food. And what does a rabbi do when he has a poor person, fellow Jews with him? He, of course, discusses Torah matters with him. So say, okay, let's talk Torah. Well, we're having, I'm giving you dinner here and you're welcome to my home. But let's discuss matters of Torah. Unfortunately, this pauper was not only poor financially, he was poor spiritually as well. Didn't know anything. Okay, let's talk scripture. Don't know any scripture. Let's talk Mishnah. Don't know any Mishnah. Nothing. Well, do you at least know how to say the blessings? Something? And he says, no. Whenever I have to say a blessing, I have to listen to someone else and, and mimic them. So the rabbi is devastated. I bring this person to my house and they know nothing. So he says a very sharp criticism, a very sharp zinger, he tells this young, he tells this poor person. He tells them, okay, you want to say the blessing? Repeat after me. A dog ate Yanai's food. Meaning, if you don't have Torah, how do you ascend above your animalistic self you're like a dog, which is a very harsh criticism. It's like, you're not connected to Torah. What's wrong with you? And the man responded with a line. And he says, no, 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 you're wrong. When it says in Deuteronomy, 
when it describes the Torah, what does it say? Torah Tivalana Moshe, Torah is commanded us by Moses, it is the heritage of the congregation of Israel, of Jacob. Meaning, if you're part of the Jewish people, this is your heritage. It doesn't say the heritage of Yanai. It's not your Torah. It's my Torah as much as it is yours. And I think that really typifies the experience of the receiver of the Torah. Everyone was needed. If there's one person, even that poor, that, that, that poor person that knew nothing, if they were missing, the acceptance of the Torah cannot have been completed. It's another amazing theme that I think it's relevant not only to the festival, to understanding the history, the backstory of Shavuot and accepting the Torah, but also to what the, what the relationship that our nation maintains with the Torah since Sinai. Now, they got to the mountain six days before the actual revelation and three days before the Almighty sends a message to the nation via Moses, tell them to separate from their wives, this time of, of a certain degree of asceticism. They have to be pure. They have to be cleansed. They got to wash their clothing. It's time to prepare for this unity, for this experience, for what is described in Jewish literature as a wedding, as a marriage at Sinai. And of course, the nation, they're given the offer. Do you want the Torah? Do you not want the Torah? And they respond with uh, one of the famous uh, mottos of Jewish history, we will do and we will listen. They don't ask what's inside. They don't ask what's the fine print. They don't do their due diligence. They say we're in and we'll figure out how to obey it later. We trust you. We're totally committed. And of course, on the morning of the sixth day of Sivan, the whole nation comes to the mountain and the description is found in chapter 19 and 20 of, of, of Exodus, of course, chapter 24 as well. And in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, the, when Moshe is about to die, he retells the story. He recounts it in Va'eschan, in the second section, second parsha of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, every year, when it's the festival of Shavuot, on the sixth day of Sivan, we have a festival, the festival of Shavuot, to relive it as we do with every Yom Tif, as we do with every festival, every holiday, we kind of try to recapture the aura, the spirit that was present on that day. Now, one of the things that are unique about this festival is that it's given many different names. And each name, of course, highlights a different facet of the, of the day. And when we pray, we describe the festival as Zman Matan Torosenu, the time of the giving of the Torah. That's, of course, the most common association that we have with this day, this is when we got the Torah. And one of the interesting questions, I think, to really delve into this festival is, wait a minute, okay, what did they actually get at Sinai on the sixth day of Sivan? They got Ten Commandments, which out of 613 commandments, it's a very small amount of the mitzvos. So how do we enshrine this day as the day of the receiving of the Torah. In actuality, we only got a small fraction of the Torah itself. And moreover, it's important to just clarify this point. The written Torah was only given to the Jewish people at the end of the 40 years when Moshe is about to pass away. For the duration of the 40 years, it's not in Torah, but it's all oral. So we didn't get the written Torah. 
we didn't really get much of the oral Torah. We got the Ten Commandments. We got the experience of Sinai. But somehow, this day is classified as the day of the getting of the Torah. Well, you may argue, hey, this was the beginning of it. This is when we started getting the mitzvahs. And consequently, this is the day when it all began. And therefore, it's attributed as the day of the giving of the Torah. Well, that's not true either because, like we mentioned earlier, when they were in Mara, one of the stops between Egypt and Sinai was a place called Mara, and they got several mitzvahs there. And those days are not are not designated as days of the giving of the Torah. So the Ten Commandments are not the first mitzvahs either. So what's the meaning behind that? And I have five answers to this question, and we'll run through them. But I, I think that they will give us more of an understanding as to the magnitude of of the day and of the Ten Commandments. So, of course, what happened after the Ten Commandments? Moshe is called up to heaven, and he spends 40 days in a different dimension. He's with God, he's with the angels, he's getting the Torah. He comes back down 40 days later, and there's the golden calf, and he has to break the tablets, and he has to go back again, he has to intercede, God wants to destroy the Jewish people. Of course, we read that in the end of Exodus. But it wasn't just the Ten Commandments themselves. Moses goes up to heaven to receive the Torah and the bulk of the Torah, all the laws. And therefore, that's maybe what we're highlighting, not the Sinai experience for us, but the Sinai experience, what it gets started for Moses. So maybe an answer. But maybe more specifically, our sages tell us that the first two of the Ten Commandments were given to us directly by God and the subsequent eight commandments were given to us by God via Moses. Jewish people heard prophecy. They couldn't handle it. They tell Moses, this is too much for us. We're all going to die. And Moses says, okay, I'll, I'll be the intermediary. Now, the obvious question is, okay, well, if they couldn't handle it and they demanded that Moses, he be the intermediary, well, why'd they stop after two? Shouldn't they stop after one? If they can handle... They can't handle it, then after one, they should say, Moses, that's it, it's enough. If they can handle two, why can't they handle all ten? So why are they stopping specifically after two, two for God, and eight via Moses, via Moshe? In fact, the Talmud tells us that the gematria, the numerical value of the word Torah, is 611. Why? Because Torah, Tzivalanu, Moshe, Torah was planted by Moses, Six alive were commanded us by Moses, and two we got directly from God. And that's six thirteen. But like, what's special about these two? I'm the Lord your God. Don't have any other foreign gods. Why do those have to come directly from, from God? Perhaps the answer is that really there's only two mitzvahs. There's a positive mitzvah to believe with God, and there's a negative mitzvah a prohibition, a transgression, not to do idolatry, not to repudiate God. And all the other mitzvahs are just examples of believing in God and not not believing in God. And all of Torah was encapsulated in the first two of the Ten Commandments. That's it, we got the whole Torah. (laughs) How do you actually do it? Oh, okay, I'll tell you how to actually do it. We'll break it down to its details. That's the rest of Torah. But the essence of Torah is condensed into the experience that we got at signing directly from God. And that's why the Jewish people to hear the first two from God and then stop after one, and they couldn't go past two because they 
had to hear all of Torah in a very condensed way from God himself. And then afterwards, okay, Moses will come and say, let me elaborate on this. Let me give you the Torah, so to speak, the six eleven ways in which those two mitzvos are actually fulfilled. Which is another very powerful idea that really all of Torah can be derived or can be traced back to this very basic fundamental insight of the first two of the Ten Commandments. And by the way, every mitzvah then by extension is either when someone is, in, is affirming their faith or, God forbid, every sin has within it an element of idolatry. Because after all, if, if God said no and you say, I don't care, aren't you prioritizing something else above God? So that's another way to understand as to how Mount Sinai and how the Ten Commandments, how that equals all of Torah. Now, my grandfather, blessed memory, he said another very powerful insight. And his idea is, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll notice the first one is about faith. And the last one is, thou shall not covet. Don't desire the things that belong to your neighbor. And there's a famous teaching of the Ibn Ezra. How do you not desire the good things that your neighbor have has? After all, it's desirable. Torah's not telling us don't act upon it, don't even desire it, don't covet it. How do you not covet? Isn't it natural to desire nice things that your neighbor has? And the answer, says the Ibn Ezra, is that when someone really, truly, completely, genuinely, sincerely believes in God, then they realize that God apportioned what I need to me, what my neighbor needs to my neighbor, and me trying to change that is totally infeasible. It's totally unobtainable. And when someone realizes that something is unobtainable, they don't even desire it. Just like people, normal, healthy people, don't desire sprouting wings from their forearms and flying like a bird, his example, not mine, normal people who have faith don't desire the goodies of their neighbor. And therefore, what in effect we're seeing here is that the Ten Commandments are telling a story. They're telling a story about the beginning of our journey into faith. I'm the Lord your God, a very abstract, kind of theoretical idea to believe in God and then to have it resonate within you to such a degree that it alters what you desire and you'll stop coveting your neighbor's stuff. It's the ultimate expression of faith is thou shalt not covet. And the Torah is trying to bridge you from the beginning to the end of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are a condensed version of all of Torah. Where is Torah trying to bring us? I say this point out that if you count the letters of the Ten Commandments, you'll end up with 613 letters because they're hinting at the fact that these Ten Commandments correspond to all the mitzvahs. It's another, again, condensed version of uh, of the mitzvos and what they're trying to effectuate within us. The Rambam, he says another insight, a very powerful insight. He says that the Mount Sinai experience, that is the cause of us believing the divinity of everything that comes subsequently. When you have a prophet, there's only two options. Either they're a real prophet or they're a fraud. 
Those are the only two options. And how do we know that Moses is not a fraud? It's a good question. It sounds sacrilegious, but the Ramam's approaching it in a very logical way. How do we know? The answer is Sinai. Yes, Moses did miracles previously. Moses did the ten plagues and the splitting of the sea, and he brought us the manna. He did a lot of amazing, cool things. But all those things were of a lower level of verification. Why? These were miracles. And you know what? There's still a little bit of room to doubt. Maybe it was fake. Maybe it was a trick. I don't know how he did it, but whatever. There is still the possibility of a scintilla of doubt. All that was dispelled, was shattered at Sinai. At Sinai, in effect, we listened in to a prophecy between the Almighty and Moses. We were elevated to the level of Moses temporarily, unnaturally, but we were elevated to a level where we to experience prophecy and we lived through it. And thenceforth, everything that Moses says, we know is legit because we experience prophecy together with him. Thus, his idea here is that what is so special and so lasting about Mount Sinai is not just the amazing experience that we had at the time. It's not even the content of what we we learned. Not not even the content of the Ten Commandments. It's about the independent verification that we got of Moses as being legit. And therefore, the rest of the Torah, go tell the Jewish people all the laws, right? Obey the Shemitah. Where does that come from? It comes from Moses. Is he fake? Is he real? Is he legit? At Sinai, Moses was independently verified by the entire nation. And consequently, everything he tells us is legit. And those are maybe five different reasons for us to understand as to how we can accurately describe the festival of Shavuot as Man Matan Dersen, the time of the giving of the Torah. Now, what is interesting, the written Torah itself has many different names for this festival. But one name that it does not attribute to this festival is Zman Matan Torosenu. The Torah itself never describes Shavuot as the time of the giving of the Torah. It calls it Chag HaKatsir. It calls it Shavuot. It calls it Yom Bikurim. It has other names. The Talmud calls it Atzeret. But it's not described as the time of the giving of the Torah. So why not? Isn't that obvious? Isn't it hiding the most important part of the day? The most significant element of this day is you would think that on this day we got the Torah, on this day we had the Mount Sinai experience. Why is that not explicitly mentioned? Why is that avoided? Why is that kind of hidden? So it's an interesting question. The Kliyakar, one of the commentaries of the Torah in Leviticus 23, 16, so again, the verse is talking about Shavuot, and it describes, so this is the 50th day after seven weeks of counting. You count for 49 days, and this is the 50th day, and this is the day you offer new grain. There's a lot of uh, agricultural undertones. It's, it's a time of the harvest. It's a time of the new fruits. It's a time you bring the new the, the, the offering of the new grain. But again, it doesn't describe at the time of, of the giving of the Torah, the time of, of the Sinai experience. So he asked the question, the Kliyakar does. Why does the Torah not attribute it as the day of the giving of the Torah? And this is a very powerful answer. The Torah, the giving of the Torah, is not pigeonholed to any one date in the calendar. Every day, 
when someone studies Torah, in effect, they're having a little mini Sinai experience. He quotes the Talmud. The Talmud describes the Torah to a breast. The child suckles on the breast and there's more insight. There's more there's more food, so to speak. Torah is like that. That's the Talmud in the book of Erevin tells us. That every time you connect to it, it's a new experience. It's not, you're not rehashing the old stuff. It's a new experience because you're discovering new wisdom, new insight. It's a new Sinai experience. That's why he says on this verse, he says it's a day of the new grain. Yeah, it's the day of the new grain. And that has a simple agricultural meaning that this is the day where you offer, you know, the Shteelechem, which is the offering from, that comes from the new grain. It's the first offering that comes from the new grain. But it's hinting at the fact that the Torah, it's always renewing itself. Every day, the experience that we're supposed to have with the study of the Torah is as if this is a Sinai. Today is Sinai. Yesterday was Sinai. Sinai is every day, every time we, we sit down to study, we're experiencing Sinai anew. A very powerful insight. So I want to run through some of the uh, other themes of the day and uh, trying to think of, of ways that we could maximize our own personal experience on uh, on the upcoming festival of Shavuot. So like we said, it's described as the Chag HaKatsir, the festival of the of the harvest. And uh, the Torah seems to kind of make a connection between Pesach and the second day of Pesach, which will bring the, the, the Omer offering, which is an offering made out of barley, and Shavuot, which is, again, 50 days later, the day that you bring the wheat offering. And it's been pointed out by many of the commentators that there's a connection here. And the Ramban, for example, he says these are like the intermediate days of a long, it's one big festival from, from Pesach to Shavuot. And these are the bookends. And we know in Jewish literature that barley is associated with animal fodder, it's animal food. And wheat is associated with human food. And it's been pointed out that on Pesach, when we had our physical liberation, we kind of highlight our animalistic half, our body, and that our body is really not distinct from animals. We have the animal food, so to speak, offering. Shavuos is a time for us to accentuate our soul. It's a time of spiritual liberation. It's These are two halves of one whole. We're becoming totally liberated, first physically and then spiritually. And therefore, we kind of highlight the Torah, which is the it's like the food for our soul. It's, it's what makes us human, what makes us above animals, makes us ascend to the next level. And therefore, the offering of, of that day is something that comes from wheat, something that comes from human food. And the intention being that Torah is the tool that maintains our humanity, ensures that we maintain our humanity. We don't slip away and start acting in animalistic ways, following just our instinct and not tapping into our intellect. It's also called Yom Habikurim, the day of the new fruit. And there are some laws that are associated with this. For example, there's a mitzvah to bring Bikurim, which means your new fruits. You bring it to, to Jerusalem. There's a famous citation that you say, a declaration that you that you say, that we actually, you know, much of the Haggadah on Pesach is the deductions, is the... Uh, exegesis of the declaration of the new fruits. We talk about uh, uh, Laban. It's, it's a very um, broad message that is conveyed during the during the Bikurim. Moreover, 
the new fruits, the new grain is unlocked, so to speak, for being brought in the temple with the Shtelechem. And if you look in Rashi in his commentary, to explain why it's called Yom Bikurim, he explains because this is the day where we bring the new grains to the to the temple as 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 offerings. Now, in the Talmud, it is given a another name. It's called Atzeres or Atzeret. And what is somewhat unusual about this is that this is not the only festival. It's called Atzeres. There is Shemini Atzeres, which is at the end of Sukkot. You have seven days of Sukkot, and on the eighth day, it's called Shemini Atzeret, and Rashi tells us, it's like, you know, a father invites his child to a banquet, and seven days of celebrating together, and then it's the eighth day, and the father tells the child, it's, it's difficult for me to see you leave. Stay for another day, and then you can leave. Similarly, the Mai says, okay, Atzeret, which means stop. Stop. Don't leave yet. Let's, let's have one more day of celebration. And it's kind of odd or unusual that two days that don't seem to have much overlap, the last day or the, the the appendage, so to speak, of Sukkot and the festival of Shavuot, they're both are called the same by the same name of, of, of Atzeret. So maybe there's a, a way to explain the the connection. You know, in the example that Rashi gives, a father invites his son to a seven-day banquet and says, it's difficult for me to watch you leave. Stay for another day. The eighth day. Aren't you just kicking the can down the road? Won't, won't you have the same problem the next day? That the next day they're going to leave. Well, kick it down the road another day. Eventually they'll never leave. So what does it help to defer, to delay the eventual separation? What's, what's the idea? So perhaps the idea is that, yes, if the son and the father leave, they separate from each other, there's the risk that they'll miss each other too much. But if they dedicate a day, the eighth day, the Shemini Atzeres, they dedicate a day to say, okay, now is a time to deepen our bonds so that even when we go our separate ways, we're still united. If that's the goal of the eighth day, then even in the ninth come, come the ninth day and the son leaves and the father goes, they're going in different directions but that bond that was fostered over the course of that last day, that will remain, that will keep them united. So maybe we could say that's the same thing with, with, with Shavuot. You know, if you think about it, you have, you have the Exodus, you have Passover, and then you have the Omer that bridges these two days together, and then you have the climax, so to speak, Satsaris. And the objective of this day is you know, like the, the day of Sinai is described as a wedding day. It's a day of, of, of forging a relationship, a covenant that can outlast separation. That's deeper than being necessarily in close proximity. And therefore, it's the same kind of thing. Day 50, Shavuot, day 8, Shemini Atzeres, they're both the end of 7. So you have 7 times 7 plus 1, right? So 7, 49, and then 50. And by the way, in Jewish philosophy, the number eight and the number 50 are the same number because they're just the one after seven. And it doesn't matter if it's one after seven or one after seven sevens. They're both the same number from a kind of mystical, philosophical, Kabbalistic perspective. And both of them are, okay, we have had now these seven days or these seven weeks. Now let's cement that relationship. That way when the eventual parting has to happen, 
We don't feel that loss because the bond that connects us to is that strong. And similarly, my grandfather used to say that we know we count the, the Omer, you start counting it from the second day of, of Pesach, which seems a little bit unnatural. Shouldn't you start counting it from the first day of Pesach? Why would you start counting the Omer, the 50 days, connecting Passover and, and Shavuot? Why would it start from the second day of Pesach? It seems more normal to start it from, from the first day. So he explained that on day one of Passover, the day of the Exodus itself, the Jewish nation was elevated to the absolute acme, to the absolute peak. And that is called in Jewish literature, the 50th gate, the highest level. But because they didn't really earn it, after all, they were previously just enslaved in Egypt. They weren't special. They were idolaters, really like their Egyptian neighbors. To a certain degree, they were identical to the people they're being liberated from. So they were uplifted, and the very next day, they went back to ground zero. And then they took them 50 days each day, working back up the ladder, rung by rung, day by day. 50 days later, they're at the exact same point where they were on the first night of Pesach, the only difference being that they earned it versus on Pesach, they were given it for free. So in essence, the first day of Pesach and the festival of Shavuot, the Jewish nation is at the exact same location, the only difference being on Passover, they got there unnaturally, they got there supernaturally, they were brought there, and then by Shavuot, they earned it. And therefore, the day of day 50, this time you earned it yourself, the time now is to solidify that and to have that perpetuate, like the Atzeres example, perpetuate from then on. Now, on Shavuot, we read the book of Ruth. And in in Scripture, in Tanakh, in the Jewish Bible, there are five books that are called the Megillahs, which means the scrolls, and they are read on various important days of the Jewish calendar. So, of course, the book of Esther is read on on Purim. We read Ashir Hashim, Song of Songs, on Pesach. On Sukkot, we read Ecclesiastes Koheles. On Tishabav, on the sad day, we read the book of, of Lamentations, the book of Echa. And on Shavuot, we read the book of Ruth. And the story of Ruth really follows this character, Ruth. Uh, she was a Moabite princess. She marries some Jews. This is the, in the times of the judges. Her husband dies and her brother-in-law dies as well. And then she has to make a choice. Is she going to go this way or she's going to go that way? The red pill or the blue pill? And she decides she's going to join her mother-in-law, go back to Israel and become a Jewess. Eventually, she marries someone named Boaz. And the, the epilogue of the story is that she becomes the great-grandmother of, of David, of King David. And one of the reasons as to why the Book of Ruth is read on Shavuot is that we know by tradition that King David was born on Shavuot. So there's an easy connection here. He's a descendant of Ruth, after all. So there's some sort of connection between the monarchy and the Messiah and, and Shavuot. But I think there's maybe some deeper insight into the essence of the day and why we read this story. 
So first of all, it shows us the concept of the Torah being the great equalizer. The Torah is, is a meritocracy. After all, we know that there are certain converts that are disqualified from marrying the Jewish people. And one of them, it's a verse in scripture, Lo yavo amoni umoavi Hashem. A Moabite cannot join the congregation of God, meaning they can convert, become Jewish, but they can't marry Jewish. So really, they're kind of locked out of the Jewish family. Now, Ruth is a Moabite convert. And is she allowed to marry the Jewish people or not? If she's not allowed, then King David is disqualified because his great-grandmother, she wasn't really allowed to marry the Jewish people, into the Jewish people. So the Talmud tells us that if you read this, the, the verse quite critically, it says, a male Moabite convert cannot enter the congregation of the Jewish people, but a female Moabite convert can. And therefore, David's okay. Even though the Talmud describes they weren't so sure, should we ostracize him? Is he a bastard? Is he legit? And of course, in the end, there's no one more legit than King David. He's the king of Israel, and not only him, his descendants after him. But if you think about it, Ruth is someone we don't even know if she's allowed to marry the Jewish people. You would essentially say she has the weakest pedigree of anyone, any hero in in the entire Bible. And what happens? What's the end game? The end game is that she is the matriarch of the most important prestigious line amongst the Jewish people. That's the power of Torah. Torah does not look at who you are, where you're from, what's your backstory, who's your daddy. None of that. It's what did you do for yourself? Everyone's born ignorant. We're all born ignorant. And the Torah is an opportunity to connect to God. And like the Talmud tells us, if you have a high priest, the most prestigious Jew, who's not a Torah scholar, and you have a mamzer, a bastard, someone who is an outcast, a pariah, but they're a Torah scholar, which one do you give more honor to? The bastard, that's a Torah scholar. Because you know what? You're a Kohen, your dad's a Kohen, great. What do you do to earn that? Torah is yours to earn and yours to ignore. And therefore, it is the ultimate meritocracy. And here we see someone who really embodies that more than anyone else. Ruth, she's someone with, with the nobility of character, someone who really we weren't even sure till much later, was she even allowed to join the family? But ultimately, look what she produced, look, look what she became. And therefore, she really embodies, she personifies the the bargain, so to speak, of, of Torah. Maybe there's a few more angles that we see in the Ruth story that have a connection overlap with, with Shavuot. We know we learn many of the laws of conversion from, from Ruth. And it's been argued that the Sinai experience was in effect a mass conversion. This was a nation of idolaters. Yes, they come from Imran and Jacob. But now it's only became a nation, and it was the equivalent of transforming Gentiles, so to speak, into Jews. And therefore, we have to look at the Torah experience in general as a conversion event. Moreover, she, Ruth, we know she was a Moabite princess. If she would have taken the other side, she could have gone back to riches and royalty, 
but she chose to forfeit all for what she believed in. And you know what? She was rewarded handsomely. Sometimes with our connection to Torah, we think about all the things we lose. You know, if I commit myself to Torah, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose all these other opportunities. I'll have to forfeit, I have to yield other other themes. And here we see Ruth is the maybe inspiration for us. Look what she gave up, but ultimately look what she became. Look what look what her legacy is. Now, how are we supposed to behave on the festival of, of Shavuot? It's a very interesting teaching in the Talmud in the book of Sachem, page 68b. And the Talmud is discussing, you know, what's the attitude on festivals? Is it a day of, of physical pleasure? Is it a day of spiritual pleasure? Should we be studying Torah only? Should we be fasting? What's the, what's the balance of the day? So it brings a dispute, according to some opinions. No, it's a day of festivals in general or a day of designation for spiritual matters. Other opinions, no, it's a day of designation for physical matters too. And then it tells us a line. Everyone agrees that on Shavuot, on Atzeret, you have to also engage in physical matters. It's mandatory to enjoy the day physically as well. That Everyone agrees. There's something about this day. You have to enjoy it physically as well. The Talmud goes on to say a story. One of the great rabbis, he says he would fast every day of the year with, with the exception of three days. There were three days he didn't fast. Every day he would fast the whole day and eat only at night. There was three days that he did not fast. Purim, the day before Yom Kippur, and Shavuos. Those are the only days that he didn't fast. Again, an example, you have to enjoy this day physically as well. And then it gives us a great story about Rav Yosef. Rav Yosef would tell his family, on this day, I want the best steak possible. I want the best day possible. Because this is this is our day. Because if not for this day, then go to the marketplace. How many people are called Yosef? How many Joes are there? Quite literally. How many Joes are there in the marketplace? There's a million Joes in the marketplace. And if not for Shavuot, it's not for the Torah, I'd be a Joe Shmo like everyone else. And therefore, this is the day we got to celebrate. This is the day that we got the Torah. This is the day that we had the ability to ascend above the Joes around us. I think it's really interesting. You know, we got the Torah. Why does that necessitate that we have to be delighted with physicality? Why? What's the connection? So there, there we got the Torah. Okay, so why do you have to enjoy it? Why do you have to have those stakes? So there's a few answers. One of the popular answers is that, you know, if we weren't fallible, if we weren't physical, if we weren't human, if we didn't have our flaws, if we didn't have our physicality, we'd be angels. And you know who does not need Torah? Angels. In fact, when Moses debated with the angels, he wanted to get the Torah and they said no. He says, well, are you human? Are you flawed? Do you have a Yetzahara? Do you have a father and mother? Do you have physicality? No. And therefore, you don't need the Torah. We, we're flawed, we're physical, we're, we're, we're fallible. We're the ones who are deserving of the Torah. That's one popular answer. I want to propose two alternative answers. I want to say that by us dwelling on physicality, normally that's a risk. Because you know what? The physical world, the body, the spiritual world, the soul, these are opposites. And if you have one, you have to forfeit the other. You can't really have them both together. 
most of the time. What is the power of Torah? The power of Torah is that it takes the sting out of the Yetzirah. It takes the sting out of the physicality. It neutralizes the danger of the physicality. It takes someone and elevates them to a higher dimension. You could have physicality, provided you have Torah, that will make sure that it's not a problem. It's a, it's a blanket shield against the dangers of, of the Yetzirah. Our sages point out that the one offering in the temple throughout the whole year that was made out of chametz, i.e. leavened bread, is brought on Shavuot. Normally, there's a prohibition against bringing any chametz, any leavened bread into the, into the temple. On Shavuot, it's okay. Why? So the answer is that in Jewish philosophy, the chametz, the leavened bread, is synonymous with the Yetzirah, with the evil inclination. Look at, of course, the brachos in uh, the Talmud, brachos 17a, save us from the leavened bread, the Yetzirah. Normally, to bring the Yetzirah into the temple is anathema. Because after all, you're going to have to give up your spirituality if you want to dwell on your physicality. However, on the day of Torah, it's not a threat at all because now Torah is the shield against the dangerous components of the Yetzirah. Maybe there's another idea here. Like we said earlier, the number 8 and the number 50 are really the same number. And by the way, I'll point out, the number 71 is also the same. Right? Again, this is this, they're identical numbers in Jewish philosophy. Why? Because it's 7 plus 1. So if it's 7 plus 1 or it's 7 times 7 plus 1 or it's 7 times 10 plus 1, they're all identical numbers. And if you know, like if you know the number 8 is a big number in Jewish philosophy, the, the day of circumcision uh, like we talked about the Shemini Atzeres, 50, huge number, uh, 71, of course, the Sanhedrin is comprised of 71. And the way it's broken down is that this is Olam Abba. There's this world, seven, and then the next world is, is, is a dimension above that, either eight or 50 or 71. In fact, the Talmud says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of them experienced Olam Abba. How do we know? Ba'kol mi'kol kol. The word kol, which means all, or throughout all, appears by all three Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is the gematria? What is the numerical value of the word kol? 20 plus 30, 50. If you have 50, you have olam haba. Shavuos, the 50th day, it's a realm of olam haba. And the Talmud tells us that Shabbat also has a dimension of olam haba as well in it. And it describes it as if we have an extra soul. There's an extra soul on Shabbat. And if you look at the sources, I know this is a little bit hard to follow, but hear me out here. You look at the sources. The sources say you have an extra soul. So what does that mean? That means that this is the day that spiritual essences are not inhibited by physicality. Meaning... If you want to create a world where there's no friction, where there's no resistance, there's no headwinds to do spirituality, it's all about. On certain times, we could relive that experience here. On Shabbat, for example. You want the steak on Shabbat, right? That's what you want. You want the steak. Who wants that? Your body wants it. 
and your soul wants it. There's no resistance. And therefore, it's the extra soul. It's like Olam Abba. It's a time where the mitzvos are not facing that same resistance that they normally face. And therefore, we see here, we're told that this is a day of, that's entirely dedicated to you. Everyone agrees. We're told that this is a day that everyone agrees you have to also enjoy it physically. What this is hinting at, perhaps, is that this is a day that echoes Olam Abba, wherein it's a very natural, non-awkward time to do mitzvos, you won't have to feel that unusual, that, that, that awkwardness that is normally present. A little bit of a deep idea, but something to think about. I want to conclude with some of the other customs that are ubiquitous on this day. Uh, there's a custom to eat dairy, dairy meals. A lot of people have dairy meals. Uh, there's many different explanations as to why we eat dairy on Shavuot. Some say because, well, we got the Torah, but we don't know how to, how to, how to observe it. We had all the non-kosher pots, and therefore all we could eat was dairy. Torah is compared to milk. The Hebrew word for milk is the gematria, the American value of number 40. Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days. There's 40 generations from Moses to Ravashi. Uh, Moses started nursing from his mother, at this day, if you do the math, when Moses was born, he was born on the seventh day of Adar. Three months later, it's the same day as 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 Sinai. So that's a common custom. And finally, we have a custom to stay up the entire night, to study Torah the whole night. The reason for that is because when the Almighty arrived to Sinai, the Jewish people were sleeping in. And therefore, in order to atone, in order to rectify the sin of us sleeping in every year for 3,331 years and counting. That we have this same day. We say, okay, we're going to undo it. We're going to fix it. We're going to rectify. We're going to stay up the entire night. And that way the morning of Shavuos arrives. We may be a little bit sleepy. We may be a little bit drowsy. But we stay up the whole night studying Torah in eager anticipation for the Sinai experience. I want to thank you all for listening. Again, the email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Website is rabbiwolby.com. I look forward to next time.